Jim Shoemaker and Scott Jordan are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Helping you make the most of your money. It's time for Talk Money. Here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, good morning. Whether you're a baby boomer or a millennial, it doesn't seem to matter. A common concern in a lot of families is always about money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. Welcome to Talk Money. Well, with all the volatility going on, we thought we might step into the market a little bit today and talk a little bit about the fact that a year ago, we were focused on a shortage and everybody was just going crazy over toilet paper. Well, today, we're all focused on a lack of gasoline. So we've gone from a you know toilet paper shortage to a gasoline shortage. Now, in reality, I don't know. Uh, maybe I could say that's some truth to that. It, it, I never did run out of toilet paper, by the way. And I, um, you know, and I, I do go through that process on a regular basis. But, uh, you know, and I so far have not run out of gasoline, but the prices are going up. But you know what's really the reality of all of this is we have a tendency to get caught up in whatever the media is telling us, and we make investment decisions about that. So I've got a guest today. We're going to dive into some of the issues talking about that particular problem, and that's in the first half of the show. It's talking just simply volatility and the reality of the fundamentals of investing. Scott Jordan will be with us in just a second. Coming up, though, in the third part, or actually the middle part, is something about cybersecurity, since the reality is what's caused all this problem is a cybersecurity attack. Plus, I've asked the guys that are going to be with me, and uh, they're going to talk about Shanna Dyson and Kerry Cheston. They're going to talk about, really, some of the ideas that's going on with people going back to work, whether you're a 1099 employee and the idea of workers' comp, and if you're working at home, you don't want to miss that because it really is all about whether or not you're protected and should you be protected. But the third part of the program this week, the day, is really kind of my exciting. I guess I'm excited about it because I've met this person, I've talked to this person, and we're going to talk about something that's very dear. It's called Breaking the Cycle of Poverty. My guest is going to be Dr. Ruby Payne, so you won't, don't want to miss the third part of the day's program. But in the studio with me, a guy that does a fabulous job. We're talking about volatility and fundamentals of investments. Scott Jordan, welcome to the program, sir. Great to be here, Jim. You know, Scott, do I make sense when I say the reality of shortage of toilet paper and now <laughs> shortage of gasoline? Well, I've filled several tanks up, so if you need someone, we're running low. I I'll, like I'll sell you some like at so a you're, premium. you're following this idea, huh? I got no, it. No, 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 no. I think a lot of that is panic buying, you know, just that tendency to start fearing when we, we see these media stories that kind of spook us a little bit. But that's the reality with investing. It, so, it definitely, so see, we see that. help us understand some things that people need to real, realize. I guess this idea behind volatility, which we're seeing in the market, and hurting and the idea behind getting caught up in whether or not you're in the line to get gas or not. I mean, literally, I saw someone that I stopped at, you know, a particular station here a couple of days ago, and there must have been 40 cars. And well, you it's, told it's, me about it's, people. It's like when you're driving and you see the line, you feel like you better stop, too, you know, yeah, so it, it kind of feeds on itself. I get it. I get it. So talk about that. What do people need to be thinking about? Well, I think, you know, and we see this in investing a lot, too. I think, you know, just to kind of back up a step for a minute is is first looking at really why we're investing in the first place. And I think that's a key thing to determine 
when you're starting to think about being an investor in the investment process. You know, we're essentially investing to satisfy future needs, right? We're trying to grow assets for future needs. It's a very long-term focused, um, long-term focused plan. And I think culturally, what we we see this rise up all the time. We start to get this mentality of this get rich quick. You know, I don't have a lot of time to do this. I've I've spent. I ha- I probably haven't saved what I needed to. So so time's kind of my enemy now. I need to I need to catch up, so to speak. And that that mentality. And then and then you have situations where you have this hurting mentality and whether it's specific investments. You know, we saw that. I mean, you go all the way back to the 1600s. We saw it with tulips. Which is a crazy I know. thing. We Tulips saw in the Netherlands. Know, yeah, you see it from time to time with gold. You had the real estate surge back in the 2000, the tech stocks of the late 1990s. So you you tend to get these asset bubbles when people will see these see these prices of these assets going up, and you get that herd mentality feeding on itself, and that can be a very you know um, we call it fear of missing out. People start fear that they're going to miss out on this on this opportunity. So that kind of feeds on itself, and uh, you know we say this all the time: the herd tends to gain the most steam right before it runs off a cliff. So uh-huh. that can be detrimental to a so long-term do, investment how you, strategy. How do you keep this herd mentality in check? What do you do? What do we tell our people that's listening? This is what you do to keep that from becoming so much a part of your investment strategy. You know, it comes it comes down, Jim, to having that disciplined investment strategy. You know, going back to, okay, why are we investing? And when we figure out why we're investing, whether that's to save for I want to retire someday or I want to buy a, a new beach house or I want to put my kids through college, whatever that why is, that why can be kind of quantified. And we can look and try to design an investment strategy to help us meet that goal. And that's how you battle that that emotional getting caught up in that fear of missing out and things like that is by sticking to a disciplined strategy. Now I say that and it's not easy. It, mm-hmm. it really is not easy. It, it is so easy, especially in our, our hyper-connected culture to get caught up in these, in these upswings in the market and kind of want to abandon that strategy. Cause again, I'm going to miss out on this opportunity if I don't jump on this bandwagon and it's easy to do that. But, but sticking to that discipline strategy is key to long-term investment success. Okay. So you talk about first and foremost, think about a long-term strategy. So right. if we tell people to write something down, that's probably right. number one. I know you've talked about this before on the program, and I think it's important for it, for us to understand is to stay away from the media. Right. The media is geared to, to get you into the eyeball mentality right. where they want your eyeballs, they want to attract you, right. and they're going to be sensational. That can create that herd mentality. It absolutely can. Remember, their their goal, like you just said, is is to keep eyeballs or ears on whatever they're saying. Their goal is not necessarily for your investment success. So, and, and nothing wrong with that. They're they're doing what they do. They're, they're doing their they're job. They're providing information. They're doing their job. Uh, but you know, as an investor, as a long-term dis- disciplined investor, it's just so important to have that strategy and to stick to it in good times and bad. And believe me, when times get real bad, it's hard. When times are real good, it's easy to abandon that long-term strategy. All right. I want to talk a little bit about being an emotional investor. Before I do that, if you just tuned in, my guest is Scott Jordan. We're talking about fundamentals of investing, something that we do a lot here on the program when we do talk about money. The reality is with the amount of volatility we've had in the last couple of weeks, we hear people, we say, you know, people have said, oh, I think it's going to crash and this and this. And we're just saying, okay, just think through it. 
Don't get caught up in what the media is telling you. Don't get caught up in following the herd down some path, as you said, Scott. Sometimes that when the herd seems to gain momentum, it's yep. just before it goes over the cliff. And right. That's what you're saying. Be long-term. Have a strategy. We've got a PDF that if you would like to have a copy of the PDF, just go to Shoemaker Financial Facebook page and search for the document. It's called Don't Panic. Don't Panic. You'll find it there. You can view the document. If you can download it to a PDF and print it, feel free to do so. It's called Don't Panic. It's a PDF for you. It doesn't cost anything. Feel free to go get that. It's fundamentals of investing. Scott, when you say don't follow the herd, okay, I get it. But now, honestly, what about being <laughs> an emotional investor? And those are kind of related. I think emotions get involved with following the herd, but now you're kind of getting into that fear of loss mentality. You know, as as we've seen in the last couple of days, we've seen a little volatility kick back in, and that starts getting people nervous. You know, it, it seems like since the downturn of 2008, people have been a little gun-shy about the market. And then we had the big, big uh, great virus crisis of last year. You know, that kind of caused a little more anxiety in the market. But we say this all the time. Emotions are the enemy of any good investment strategy. And it is very hard, again, with this, this hyper-connectivity we're in, not to get caught up in that. You're all, there's always uncertainty in the market. Uh, there's always going to be market downturns for whatever the reason. Today, it seems to be a lot of talk about inflation. I mean, we've got some conflicts kicking back up over in the Middle East, and you mentioned the, the gas pipeline shortage. There's always going to be a crisis du jour, if you will, that causes people to start to think, and that uncertainty kicks in. And then, then that second fear, you know, first you have the fear of missing out, now you got the fear of loss. It's like, well, I better get out of this thing before before I'm negatively affected. And again, that's the enemy of a long-term strategy. That's a market timing strategy. And we say time in the market, not timing the market is how you hit your goals. That's a great, great point. When you come back, I want you to give our listeners some, some very specific guidelines. And, and that'll be the kind of the closing thoughts because this is a point where people follow the herd, that's danger, get so emotional that they make, create problems. So when we come back, give us some instructions on what to do. If you just tuned in, guest is Scott Jordan. We're talking about fundamentals of investing. We wanted to do this part of the program first because you guys have said, is it going to happen? What's happening? All this stuff. Well, he's talking about some very specifics. When we come back, he's going to give us some very strong guidelines on what we should be doing. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or recommendation. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments may fluctuate and when redeemed may be worth more or less than when originally invested. Welcome back. My guest is Scott Jordan. He is a certified financial planner. We're talking about fundamentals of investing. And I want to remind you, we do have a PDF for you that's called Don't Panic. If you'd like to, just go to Shoemaker Financial Facebook page and just search for that document. It's called Don't Panic because we see a lot of people asking the question. And Scott, you mentioned inflation. You mentioned all the news media and things going on. And following the herd can be dangerous. You said emotional investment can be dangerous. Now, I need some wise counsel. 
Hello. <laughs> Pause. Pause. <laughs> you talking to me? <laughs> so, yes, he, here's, my wi- here's my wise counsel. In light of all that, in light of the fact that our, our markets are cyclical, they're, they're resilient, they're cyclical and unpredictable, though. We want to invest from a disciplined process. We always start that with an asset allocation. That's how much am I going to have in stocks, how much am I going to have in cash, how much am I going to have in bonds or any other asset class you want to throw in there. And that's based on your tolerance for risk, what you're trying to accomplish, you know, how much risk can you take, you know, your goals and objectives. And then diversification. We like to, you know, no single investment works all the time. We've seen some of that market rotation already this year. So diversify by time period, by style, by class, by manager. Keep your assets diversified. And that final one is to rebalance. That's the discipline of you've decided on that asset allocation. Maybe some things have done better or worse than others. It's rebalancing back to that allocation. We recommend doing that at least once a year just to keep that risk tolerance. Now, that none of those guarantee any returns. They are they are a risk management tool. Diversification does not guarantee the highest returns or guarantee returns at all. But it is a a principled time time. It is a principled that is, <laughs> it is a principle that you should follow it's in your investing to yeah. manage risk. It doesn't risk. guarantee against loss is what you're trying to say. And I right. think everybody needs to understand that. But it is a principle when you talk about it. Diversification. Asset allocation and rebalance is something we're going to preach all the time because it does help you manage around the emotions. It helps you manage around this, you know, the idea behind hurting. I like what you said, though, Scott, and again, I consider it very wise counsel. The idea is be sure you know the why you're investing Absolutely. and the idea behind your strategy. If you don't know that, if you can't concretely nail that down, it is difficult to manage the headlines. Absolutely. And that's what Absolutely. you're saying to do right yes. there. I think it's critical for people to understand. So if you were short of toilet paper last year, well, now you may be short. You feel a shortage of gas. Well, my guest now, we're going to shift in the whole idea behind really managing risk. I have with me a certified risk manager, Kerry Cheston, and then also Shannon Dyson, both these guys with Shoemaker Insurance. And Kerry, welcome to the program, sir. Pleasure to be here, Jim. You know, Kerry, the question that, that I've just recently had, and I think it's a question that I wanted to get you on the air to answer it because, the, you know, and again, reminding everybody, if you've got questions for the program, just send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. Talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll get your question on the air, and we'll use it to kind of springboard to help talk to whatever all the other listeners might be interested in. So talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. Send it, and we'll get your question. On the air. Here's the question. The idea is, Kerry, with all the pandemic beginning to wind down, we're beginning to see people wanting, you know, they're going back to work, not as many face masks and all those things going on. But here's the guy. He says, I have employees that are contracted 1099 employees. Okay. And so technically, he says, they're not my employees now. They may have been two years ago or a year ago, but during the pandemic, we shifted them to 1099. All right, here's this question. Do I still need workers' comp? Technically. Uh, By the way, we get good advice yeah. here, too. <laughs> wise counsel. Technically, no. I mean, a 1099 employee is not an employee, but that's mainly for IRS standards, the way the IRS looks at an employee. 
Uh, I hear this all the time, especially with contract, uh, you know, general contractors in the construction uh, industry and, and other industries. Uh, em- uh, employers are 1099 or contracting employees uh, to either, you know, tax for tax purposes or to get out of health insurance mandates. Problem with work comp is uh, in the court of law, uh, the courts and judges almost always err towards the employee. It's to protect the employee. So if it if you have a 1099 contractor an employee and they essentially are told where to be, what to do, when to do, like most 1099 and employees are, then they are considered employee in the court of law. So they are should be protected Still by you. Still protected by workers' yep, comp. Yep. What about those that are now working at home for the whole year? We've had people, and I think people have kind of you know done this and multiple things, but now they're deciding to work at home permanently. They're not 1099, they're W-2, but they're working at home. Are they covered under workers' comp? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that is a question that all insurance companies ask when, when you're uh, getting a policy in place is, do you have employees that work from home? The reason they want to know that is, uh, in some cases, people think working from home is less risk, but uh, that's not always the case because they're less uh, controlled. They're not under supervision. Uh, employee could be working from their home and then, you know, on a desk changing a light bulb when they wouldn't be doing that in an office where they may be. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying take, to think about that. Do I not be on a desk? <laughs> My wife would be pulling me off of that desk. Okay, go ahead. I got yeah, it. You know, they may be doing laundry as well and throw their back out lifting clothes. I mean, there's a number of things they can be doing. Trip on a, on a Lego. And these are all things that, yes, maybe they weren't doing it uh, while uh, during working uh, working related activities, but they still can claim that they were working, technically working, and who's to say they weren't. So it's just, it's very hard to control. So they need to be diving in with a certified risk manager to get some idea around that, make sure that they are covered so that they don't come up with some surprise later on. Absolutely. And then that's just something that should be disclosed. And and it's not necessarily going to affect your work comp premium, but uh, insurance companies want to know. Be sure you disclose it. I, I like what you said. I think so many people think, well, if I don't tell them, it's okay. You're saying disclose what's going on, make sure the insurance company knows what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the insurance company is still going to pay a claim if you don't disclose it, but they may have an issue if you all of a sudden have a bunch of roofers and you didn't disclose that you, you're you're, doing, you're in the roofing business. Um, they'll pay that first claim, but moving forward, you may have some issues. You may have some issues. Great. I'm not in the roofer's business. I just want to make sure everybody knows that. <laughs> Shannon Dyson, welcome to the program, sir. Thanks for having me back, Jim. You know, Shannon, the question I have for you, this all this cyber attack, gasoline shortage, and all of a sudden we've got the whole East Coast that's going to be completely out of gas by Thursday. Uh, next week or whatever. I don't know, but that's whatever the media is saying. Here's the reality. Currently, with all that headlining in the news about cyber attacks, the Colonial Pipeline, all of that 2.5 million barrels of gasoline and jet fuel, all that's gone. Okay, all right. Talk about cybersecurity and talk about the problems that people are having. Well, it's a it's a big topic today when you look at just kind of what's going on. We, we've had shows about it in the past right. on trying to get your information and, and people out there that are bad actors that are that are on a bigger, bigger and bigger stage. Uh, and so what we're hearing about now is this ransomware and, and ransomware where is where a, a hacker can get into your system a variety of different ways. Sometimes it's just as simple as an employee clicking on an email they shouldn't have clicked on. Uh, and now they can shut your system down. 
uh, and the the ransom name comes from they're they're asking for money for them to turn it back on. Uh, That's theft without a gun. Theft without a gun, and they they're that is becoming more and more prevalent uh, in today's society. Kerry, I guess as a risk manager, how do you set down? How do you manage this with an employer, a business owner? What do you tell them? And you you know got a minute here, so yep. tell me kind of a thought process, and we'll come back after the break and talk more about it. Well, um, you know, first and foremost, you know, secure your network with anti malware. Uh, you want to consult with a reputable IT company to help set that up. Train your employees not to click, not to just randomly click and open websites and click on emails or or files. Um, back up all your data on a cloud. That way you can access that data if your system's locked Let up. Let me ask this question, and, and, and I'll take this break. But the reality is, when we come back, I want to say, if an employee clicks on something they shouldn't have, what's the – well, guys, this is the problem because, you know, this is something we see in the office all the time. It's an issue. So, hey, be back with us because we're going to talk more about this cybersecurity. The whole thing is, is a big issue you need to know more about it. I'm going to cover it. Kerry's going to cover it. Shannon's going to cover it. You stay with us. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Neither Shoemaker Financial nor Securian Financial Services are affiliated with Ruby Payne or AHA Processing. The views and opinions expressed are those of Ruby Payne only and have not been presented on behalf of or endorsed by Securian Financial Services, Inc. or Shoemaker Financial. Welcome back. I'm talking with Kerry Cheston, a certified risk manager, and Shannon Dyson of Shoemaker Insurance Solutions. And we're talking about cybersecurity and, uh, the, you know, this whole idea behind ransom whiteware. And it's a real, real problem, Kerry. I mean, you're telling me that we've had an increase in ransomware. Jim, absolutely. Uh, last five years, um, steady increase every quarter. Just uh, in qu- uh, last quarter of last year, 43% increase from same time last year. So what's the average cost? I mean, the average business owner listening today, what can I tell them that this is what it's costing on average and who are they attacking? Yeah, according to uh, uh, one of the most prominent insurers in this uh, for liability insurance, uh, the average claim is over $220,000 and uh, the most common are professional services, doctors, lawyers, CPAs, uh, people who hold client data. Um, financial firms like us. Absolutely. Banks, financial firms. Yep. Um, these are the most targeted. We hear about the big ones, these you know huge companies and cities that get hit, but a majority are small to mid-sized businesses. And, you know, $250,000 is not chump chains. I Absolutely mean, that's, that's a lot of money. And so I guess I, I, I'm going to ask this question. You know, Shannon, I'm going to lean into you. This tough question. Should somebody pay the ransomware? Nobody wants to pay a cyber criminal. A, a criminal. Nobody wants to just turn over money and no. pay. Uh, but, you know, as you look at it and as you get guidance from from insurance carriers, your consultants, you got to weigh that. Op- you got to weigh the option because you're basically saying, do I pay this? Do I pay these demands or do I risk, you know, operational disruptions? Uh, do I risk um, things costing me a lot more to fix later on if I don't do it? What's going to happen to me if I don't pay it? So you can't just have this attitude of, Nope, not going to pay it because you may need to weigh all of your options. At the end of the day, it may honestly be a better option 
for you to actually have to pay it. I know Carrie and I have talked before, and he, Carrie, you had an example of of a, a, a business owner that just said, "No, I'm I'm not going to pay it." Period. Yeah, absolutely. A lar- large, you know, business. I won't say, and it wasn't local, but um, the CEO, you know, refused. You know, I'm not going to, you know, negotiate with. I terrorists. can understand that. Absolutely. I mean, I could yep. say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But the problem is the 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 cyber liability forensic people came in, and he said, just notify our 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 clients. You know what happened, and we'll we'll just start a new system. Looked at him, Mr. CEO. You don't know who your clients are. Everything is locked up. You you have nothing. <laughs> that's that's what we don't realize. Is it's not sh- that decision. You don't have access to it. If you don't have access to your systems, you don't know who your clients are. I mean, let me tell you something. Company. That's a sobering thought. To all of a sudden realize it's locked up. Yep. You don't know. Kerry, what does somebody do? Well, as I was discussing uh, earlier before the break, uh, you know, a big thing is consult with an IT company, reputable, not just some guy working out of his basement, but a you know, reputable IT company. Um, you can get referrals from other businesses. Uh, purchase a comprehensive cyber liability policy. Don't just go with the one that's packaged into your business owner policy. Those that's not enough. Twenty five thousand, fifty thousand. You know, we I just mentioned two hundred twenty thousand is the average claim. You need a comprehensive liability policy, at least a million in my opinion. But um, you know, that's something you can discuss with your trusted advisor. And then train your employees as well. I mean, you've got it, the, the, the level of sophistication of some of these attacks that have, that have happened with uh, Amazon emails or other emails from different people that can trick you into clicking on a link that can then get that person into your system as a company. And it's just that easy to be have one employee tricked on an email and then they can infiltrate the system. A lot of training, get the proper coverage. But now let me let me let me ask you this guys, and this is our last question, just got a few seconds, a few minutes ago. But here's the thing. If I have been attacked and the insurance company who makes the decision to pay the claim? Let's say the CEO that you just said said no. Mm-hmm. What happens? Well, typically, and, and this can change from policy to policy, but typically it is the, the, the victim's choice whether to pay the ransom or not. So the insurance company, if you have coverage, they're going to work with you. They're going to negotiate on your behalf. They're going to, at the end of the day, in most policies, you as the victim have the final say-so on do I pay this ransom or do I not pay this ransom. And I think what we've talked about today, you know, as a business owner, you're, you're always looking at ways to save money, cut some costs. I think kind of what we've said today is work comp and cyber are two places you really don't want to be cutting costs on. Because this can really create a major huge liability liability implications. You You know, Kerry, I so much appreciate that you're a certified risk, you know, consultant. I mean, the idea behind being that you've done above and beyond. Explain to our listening audience, what does it mean to be a certified risk consultant? Well, uh, hopefully it knows. Uh, it means I know a little bit about what I'm talking about, but it <laughs> it just means I've taken the time. Uh, I like what he said. That. A little bit. I yeah. can I can see that. I, I, I give can, him. Yeah, he I does. He does a little. A little, yes, little absolutely. bit. Absolutely. You know, that's what Paul, a while ago when Scott says, "I said wise counsel," and it was this pregnant Paul. He's being he's being modest. He's <laughs> like being that. modest. That's I a good like quality. It. All right, little bit. Tell me what a little bit means. Uh, uh, 100, 100 to one hundred fifty hours of uh, education training, uh, taking exams, uh, different modules in different uh, areas of uh, the insurance industry and risk management. So it, it was a, it, it certainly um, was eye-opening. And, and that's what I, I try to do is constantly learn the craft because it's ever-changing. We didn't, ta- we didn't talk about cyber 10 years ago or ransomware. So 
So this industry in general is changing all the time. Well, that's, I think, what so many people realize. And, and, and Shannon, I think you said it very effectively that this liability we're talking about, whether it's workers' comp or cybersecurity, can cripple a company. Absolutely. And yep. that's something that everybody needs to be sensitive to and aware of. So I appreciate you. We've got, you know, that, you, that you've covered this material for our listeners, and I think that's very much. So thank you, you know, for doing that. Uh, Shannon and Kerry, both of you, if you'd like to talk to these guys, simply give them a call at 901-757-5757. Cybersecurity or workers' comp, great subjects for today. We're going to shift keys now. I want to talk with this lady that we have on the air now, and she is an American educator. I like that term, an American educator. This is Dr. Ruby Payne. She is the author of a best-known book, her book, Framework for Understanding Poverty. Welcome to the program, Dr. Payne. Thank you so much. All right. What I tell you, I, I'm so, I've read your book. Uh, we're going through this with a group of men at my church. And, uh, you know, this book, let me make sure our listening audience understands. You are a, an educator. You've been a teacher, a principal. You founded a company called AHA Process. And uh, I think there's so much that you're doing. You're a graduate. Of course, your Ph.D. is Loyola University. Uh, tell us a little bit about AHA Process, starting the program. Okay. Well, it's simply a company I started because I needed a vehicle to keep track of book sales. <laughs> okay. That's that simple. When you do that, you're talking about this book, this book you wrote that's called Framework for Understanding Poverty. Would you tell us a little bit what, I mean, the idea behind the book? I mean, I've kind of gone through this whole thoughts process. So what prompted you to write that book? Well, actually, I had been married for uh, many years to a man who was a mix of uh, Cherokee and Caucasian. And he had grown up in extreme poverty. And in order to understand, his name was Frank Payne. He died in 2010. In order to understand his neighborhood and, and his, his self, I had to begin to understand the unwritten rules of, of how things actually operated in a survival environment. I ended up explaining that to educators because they were so confused about what they saw in their classroom. Like, for example... Every group of people has a set of kind of hidden cueing mechanisms they use to let you know whether you belong or not. I'll ask people, have you ever been to a social setting that was uncomfortable for you? And a lot of times it's those unspoken things that are occurring. And one of them has to do with money. And um, I didn't understand. Um, money and poverty is communally shared. It's how you survive. Okay. All right. So this is so you had a need to understand. Now, this has grown to literally you've trained over 100,000 adults in understanding and getting this. And you've I mean, over millions of books have been sold. Bottom line is and you now have workshops. So I guess what I would like to do is when we come back, one of the biggest issues is how do you break the cycle of poverty. There's a thing I know in the book it talks about the second generation. So I want to lead with that question, the whole idea, but how do you how do we go about breaking the cycle of poverty? If you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Ruby Payne. She is the author, she's an author and an educator of AHA Processes, her company. And she says it's just to track her 
or book sales. And I tell you what, folks, there's a ton out there, a lot of material. You can tell this lady used to be a principal and a teacher. She's dedicated to doing that. When we come back, we're going to answer the question. She's going to answer the question. What do you have to do to break the cycle of poverty? Stay with us. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. And welcome back. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. My guest is Dr. Ruby Payne. She's the founder and CEO of AHA Process, an author, an educator, teacher, principal, and has written a book. And I tell you, the book is well worth you reading it, a a framework for understanding poverty. It's about the cultural poverty. It's about the relationship to education, communities, church. And I have read the book because I work with a parachurch ministry, and it just helped me get some insight that I really did not understand. And I tell you, it is worth your time to take the book and spend some time reading it. Parachurch ministries, uh, churches, educators, it's worth your read if you haven't had a chance. Ruby, what I wanted to ask you a question about was what do we have to do to break the cycle of poverty? Let's start with that question. Okay, well, what we have learned is that you have to impact two generations at once. In other words, you can't, one of the issues is that we believe that we can educate the children and we don't have to pay attention to the parents or the neighborhood. And you, some people do make it out that way, but what we found is that if you don't stabilize the external environment, the resources in the external environment, like you're not moving all the time, you have food every day, that kind of business, and to do that, you have to provide knowledge bases that you don't get in poverty. Um, I think all, so many of the interventions that we do assume that money will make the difference, and actually... If you're going to negotiate a different environment, you actually need a different knowledge base, and we don't provide that. When you talk about not providing that, one of the thoughts is, I mean, this inter- intergenerational, you're talking about second generation, this transfer of knowledge. I mean, we talk about a lot of ministries, and, and, and one ministry that we interview and actually have a relationship with, a lot of times we talk with them on the radio, they talk about the fact that it's, as you talk about, generational, that they started with grandparents, grandparents taught it, parents taught it, and it just continues to go. So this transfer of knowledge, what do you mean by that? I mean, is it is how to balance a checkbook, or is it, what do you say when you talk about this idea of generational transfer of knowledge? It's about how you negotiate an environment. In other words, the rules for negotiating environment and survival are very different than the rules you use for uh, negotiating an environment of stability, which are very different from the rules you use for negotiating an environment of abundance and, and excess resources. So in poverty, middle class, and wealth, we define middle class as an environment of stability. Basically, people know where they're going to sleep at night, and they know they have food every day, basically. Okay? Um, and in wealth, you have so many resources, you can't take care of them by yourself, so you have to get people to help you, and that makes you vulnerable at a personal safety level, okay? And in poverty, you're survival, and so negotiating survival is a very different reality. So one of the things, because the amygdala of the brain is developed by the time you're three, 95% developed, you get a lot of information at a nonverbal level that tells you how to negotiate an environment, and you use that. Um, and so that's the part that never gets discussed. 
people think, oh, we can talk about a uh, how to balance a checkbook and or how to do job skills. That's not how you negotiate your life. That makes a ton of sense. So let me make survival environment. All right, with that, and you talk about that, survival environment, why is personal protection then such an issue, particularly with women and children? Here's what middle class doesn't understand. Okay, you can't, you, one of the things that in a survival environment, you're vulnerable and, and physical prowess is valued because two things happen. One, in the survival environment, you tend not to call the law. And number two, by the time the law gets there, it's over. Okay, so you want to have protection and middle class women, for example, they tend to live in neighborhoods where it's safe to walk, they can. Uh, all these other issues. Well, in generational poverty, that may not be the reality. A lot of times parents will only allow their children to play on the block in an inner city. And by block, I mean the little step on the front porch, okay? Because the, the safety is not there. And what women understand in poverty is that if the children, if they're not safe, their children aren't safe. So what you do is you always have someone with physical strength there, okay, that they protect you, Uh, typically male, because male bodies typically have more strength, although you'll have females that are also strong. But one of the things that happens then is that you, there's a level of protection that's necessary. So I'll get a comment from people a lot. I don't understand why she has different children with different men. And I'm like, hey. One of the things you understand is when one resource comes, another one leaves, and what you do is you always have protection. So you're really talking about the idea behind survival and this mindset. So what we may criticize or not understand, I don't want to use the word criticize, what we don't understand is a very fundamental part of the survival of the family in a state of poverty. Am I saying that right? Can I, can I say that? Correct, and it's complicated by one other issue. Poverty is feminized, more women in it than men because it's children. But one of the characteristics around the world, and I do work around the world, is that in generational poverty, two generations or more, one of the characteristics for males is that they do not have work or they only have intermittent work. And the problem is this. One of the things criminologists will tell you, they can tell you the amount of violence in a neighborhood based on two things, the educational attainment level of a adult and the number of households that do not have men living in them on a permanent basis. Here's what happens. When you don't have work, what do you do with your time? Hmm. That's a great point. So one of the things you can do is protect. Okay. One of the things you do do also is that you will find someone to take you in and live with you for protection. What that does over time is you don't have stability. My brother-in-law was a fighter and a lover, okay? And what happened is when you're a fighter and you provide physical protection, there's periods of time the law is looking for you. You have to run and hide because you don't have the money to or the resources to do a legitimate route. And what happens then over time, there's not stability and you don't have work. And so this whole thing about unemployment and the identities that go along with that, there's a brilliant African-American sociologist out of Harvard. He says this, 
if you want to break a culture, all you have to do is take work away from men because it changes identity. Well, that makes a lot of sense. A lot, of, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Can I ask you this? Is race and poverty interwoven? Absolutely. Okay, absolutely. One of the issues is that no matter where you are in the world, and I've been all over, there's always going to have it be a group that's disenfranchised, and it can be for any kind of reason. Like in China, it's anybody who's not of the Han descent. Okay, In India, it's the lowest caste. Um, and in America, it's people of color. And what the mis- misunderstanding is that it's only people of color, and it's not. About 50% of individuals in poverty right now are white, okay? But the bottom line is that when you, have, when you lay the race card on top of it, then you make it even more complicated because of a long history of uh, denial of opportunity. You know what you're saying. There's a program that you've started, and I so much appreciate it. If you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Ruby Payne. She has written a book, and the book is entitled A Framework for Understanding Poverty. You need to get a copy of the book. You can go to AHA Process in Inc., AHA Process. I'll tell you more about it later. Dr. Payne, you have a program called, and we just have a minute left. So getting ahead, can you talk about that in just literally short time? Yes, we've taken 90,000 adults through it, and what we, we give them information. We, we think they're a problem solver. They don't get all the information. We give them tools to stabilize environment, and we're getting incredible ROI on that, return on investment for communities. Um, one community took 10 individuals, which impacted 32 people because of families, out of poverty, and they got an ROI uh, annually of $2 million a year, and it cost about... Uh, $150,000 over a two-year time frame to take those 10 people out. Wow. Dr. Ruby Payne, she's written a book, A Framework for Understanding Poverty. The organization, ahaprocess.com. Uh, you're going to want to talk to this lady, Dr. Ruby Payne. Her telephone number is 800-424-9484. Thank you, Dr. Payne. Appreciate you so much. Have a great day. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to KWAM, the mighty 990 FM 107.9 and AM 990. I want to thank my guests, Shannon, Dyson, Kerry, Cheston, and Scott Jordan. And if you have questions for them, you can call them. It's 901-757-5757. Also, Dr. Ruby Payne, AHA Process, Inc., You can go to ahaprocess.com. If you have questions for her, you can reach her at 1-800-424-9484. To find a copy of the PDF that I mentioned earlier, don't panic. Go to the Shoemaker Financial Facebook page and search for the document on our post. It's called Don't Panic. You can find it online. If you'd like to print it, just download it to a PDF and print it. Next week, my guest, Social Security. Guess who it is? Kurt Zarnowski. You don't want to miss him. We're going to talk about some of the changes going on in 2021. Michael Powell will be here. Life planning for retirement. And Tiffany Bowers, an estate planning attorney. What every family needs to know about estate planning. That's Wednesday at 9 a.m. And again on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Right here on KWAM, the mighty 990. Helping you make the most of your money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This Jim Schumacher and Scott Jordan are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc., securities dealer member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor.